Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on June 26, 2019, covering Q2 financial reporting considerations. The panelists for the webcast were Rick Levin, a partner and the leader of PwC's U.S. Tax Accounting Services Group, Damien Boudreau, a partner in PwC's U.S. Tax Accounting Services Group, Jennifer Spang, a partner and PwC's National Tax Accounting Leader, and Cassie Bellman, a Managing Director in PwC's National Professional Services Group. This excerpt consists of a discussion of Subpart F Valuation Allowance Assessments and Section 163J. Have a listen. So the first two topics, Subpart F Valuation Allowance Assessments and 163J, are a couple of specific issues that we're seeing related to U.S. tax reform. You know, continuing to see these issues emerge, uh, even though now it's been 18 months since we've had U.S. tax reform enacted and have had a time to digest it, there still are things that seem to pop up now and then. So there's a couple of important ones that we wanted to share today. Then we're going to pivot into a regulatory update from the FASB. We had the second uh, exposure draft issued so far in 2019 on the simplification initiative. We'll spend some time talking about that. And then last but not least, the cornerstone really of this webcast, uh, for those of you with financial reporting responsibilities that uh, are trying to get your arms around what are the current events for the quarter as you're getting ready to close out the second quarter, we want to cover off on some legislative developments. And there, there's quite a few that, that are, we have to cover. Uh, so we'll probably spend a little bit more time on that section than we might otherwise do on our webcast. And that last option of other uh, probably deserves a little bit of an explanation. What we try to do there is get feedback on topics for future webcasts. So if you could do me a favor, if you select that option, open up the chat feature, type in your suggestion for a future topic that you'd like to see our panel cover. Uh, We do take a look at those uh, suggestions and often think about them and, and take them into account as we uh, set our agenda for these webcasts. So I appreciate you providing that feedback. So let's get now started into our very first topic, which is uh, accounting for subpart F. And this is a bit of a risky topic to start with because it's a you know a detailed tax technical issue. And uh, you could have people that are listening saying, you know, did I join the wrong webcast? This is an international tax webcast. It's, I thought it was an accounting webcast. Or you could have, on the other end of the spectrum, people saying, what the heck is subpart F? So there's a pretty wide range of uh, backgrounds we need to try to bridge when we're thinking about today's this topic today. And Damien, I'll ask you in a moment to kind of share some of the background uh, that will help us talk about the accounting aspects of it. But to set up why we're talking about it, uh, what we're seeing, if you think about subpart F, it's really the historical uh, anti-deferral regime that existed in the tax law before tax reform. And it was, for the most part, unaffected by the 2017 Tax Act. Uh, But we are, and for that reason, there was quite a bit, there was some kind of developed accounting guidance around how do you deal with subpart F. Uh, And we're seeing an increase in the number of people asking about that guidance. And it seems as though what's happening is in response to tax reform and guilty, which is the new anti-deferral regime that's been layered on top of subpart F, if you will, people are actually purposefully planning into subpart F as a way to get a better answer, if you will, without getting into a lot of detail. And for that reason, there's been more, more questions. So I guess, Damien, let me turn to you to get us rolling here. If we think about subpart F, what are some of the key things that are important to help understand the accounting model and what some of these questions that we're hearing? 
Sure. No, and, you know, at its core, subpart F is an anti-deferral regime, as you mentioned, and it, it seeks to target certain movable income of a controlled foreign corporation or foreign subsidiary. Uh, some of us may think of this as dividend income, royalty income, interest income. Uh, also might include certain income from the purchase or sale of personal property to a related party. Um, at its core, you know, it, it's, tax, it's, it's taxing something currently, right? Mm -hmm. So even though these are earnings earned offshore, it's taxing them currently, even though those amounts may not be distributed back to the U.S. shareholder. And it's also important to note that those amounts or those determinations are limited to current tax basis E&P or earnings and profits. Um, at the point that it's taxable, subpart F is effectively it's going to have a deemed distribution back to the U.S. shareholder, followed by a contribution back down to the foreign subsidiary. Uh, that will increase our U.S. tax basis in that subsidiary, and it will increase our, what we'll say, previously taxed E&P or PTEP. I think some of us may remember this as previously taxed income or PTI. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the point being is that when it's distributed later, it's generally not subject to additional further U.S. taxation. So there may be foreign withholding taxes, some foreign exchange gain or loss, or state impacts, uh, but generally not an additional foreign uh, tax effect from that distribution. And again, it's important to note when you're thinking about those repatriations to consider the ordering of that PTEP or PTI, particularly with the notice 2019-01. Yeah, so a couple of things that you mentioned there that I think will at least give some insight as to why we have some of the accounting guidance out there. Because uh, fundamentally what's happening, if I could just summarize some of the points you made, you've got income of a foreign subsidiary, it's going to be taxed by the foreign parent currently. So that brings into mind outside basis differences. It brings into mind you know, the APB 23 or indefinite reinvestment assertion. So what are some of the things to think about on the accounting model as we think about subpart F? Sure. So, I mean, if there are temporary differences that exist that could give rise to subpart F income or impact subpart F income, when those temporary differences reverse, you know, we have to consider those from a deferred tax perspective, particularly where a company has made an indefinite reinvestment assertion. And so kind of two general models to think about, and it really depends upon whether an entity is considered a full inclusion entity or not. And I think that's an important definition here. And a, and a full inclusion entity is effectively a subsidiary, a foreign subsidiary, uh, that generates subpart F income, but generates part, as part of its gross income, that's actually more than 70% of its gross income. Uh, and in those cases, 100% of the income is generally subject to subpart F income, meaning as a practical matter, all of the earnings of that foreign subsidiary are currently taxable in the U.S. And so, in those types of you know, situations, uh, we believe that the accounting model is analogous to a branch accounting model. And for those that don't have experience in the branch accounting model, you know, we generally think of three sets of deferred taxes in that model. So the first being you know, the local deferred taxes, generally based on local, you know, local foreign tax principles. You'll then have a second layer of deferreds, we'll call the home country, in this case the U.S., uh, set of deferred taxes that really reflect the foreign tax credit impacts of those local deferreds, whether that's an increase to future foreign tax credits or a loss thereof in the future. And then the final piece is the temporary differences from a U.S. tax perspective between the difference in the subsidiary's book carrying value of assets and liabilities as compared to its U.S. tax E&P basis in those same assets and liabilities. Maybe, Davian, as you describe that, you know, for me, 
that sounds just like our guilty deferred model, right? So it's based on branch accounting, similar to what you've just described for a full inclusion. But I think it's probably important to note that the guidance that the FASB gave with regard to guilty and the ability and um, availability of a policy choice there between a period or accounting for the deferred tax effects was given in the context just of guilty. So subpart F, obviously, as you guys have both mentioned, has been around for many years long before you know the Tax Act. So it is important that a parallel shouldn't be drawn to having those same two policy choices um, you know, for subpart F that might exist for, that do exist for guilty. Right. And there's some irony that comes up in that conversation right. because we've had clients, really why we're talking about this today, quite frankly, where clients have said we're planning into subpart F, um, but if we take this bucket of income that would otherwise be guilty, FASB says we have a policy choice mm -hmm. and we right. don't have to deal with this accounting, or we have a choice of whether or not we want to deal with it. But on, on if we plan into uh, subpart F and its full inclusion, there's a complicated model that goes along with that. You don't have a choice around. So right. that irony has been yeah. pointed out to us uh, before. So, uh, so one of the other things I want to get back to what you were saying, you know, when you look at historically subpart F, companies would have dealt with it on more of a one-off type basis or, you know, maybe if you were in full inclusion, you were there because you had some aspect of your model or your your business that was subject to it. You couldn't do anything about it because it's a punitive provision. You wouldn't purposely be right. in it. Um, so you didn't see it very often. And, and when you did, people were kind of stuck in it. So that's why we've got this branch model, which makes a lot of sense. But sometimes when we're talking to clients about planning and use of subpart F and full inclusion in particular, it's not quite, it's a little bit less clear in terms of how long right. the company plans to be within this full inclusion. So what do you do in a situation where you could be either flipping in and out or up and down over that 70% threshold where you might not be consistently in it or continuously in it? Right. So, so in those situations where you may not be consistently in a full inclusion model year over year, uh, then that branch accounting model would generally not be applicable. Uh, and in those circumstances, you would look to your you know, legacy policy for how to account for subpart F, I'll call it in a normal context or where you did not, where you had subpart F income, but not in a full inclusion context. Gotcha. Okay. So, Jen, let's give Damien a little bit of a break just to, you know, from subpart F, right? Who wants a break? <laughs> <laughs> Whoever wants a break from subpart F. <laughs> um, so, uh, Damien mentioned the general model. So, you've got this full inclusion model and the uniqueness of it in terms of it being similar to a branch, but what is the general model, if you will, around subpart Yeah, so we think you can look at it in two ways. Um, one is an inside basis and one is an outside basis model. So on an inside basis model, much as Damien has described, you're looking inside the foreign corporation or the CFC, you're looking inside at those temporary differences, which when they reverse will have a subpart F impact, and you're recording the taxes on those, regardless of the fact or regardless of whether you do or don't have an outside basis and what it might look like. Um, the outside basis model, probably by the name, is somewhat obvious, uh, is a lens where you also look inside the CFC, but then you cap any um, deferred that you're recording, any of that, for, that U.S. subpart F deferred impact, future, future impact, you cap it based upon what your outside basis. So if you think about that, that if you had, for example, a tax over book outside basis, so a potential deferred tax asset, you might be booking no impacts. Um, contrast that to if you have a, ta a book over tax, 
you could either, you know, up to the extent of that outside basis, you could be recording it. So you might have more or less and you'd be capped at that point. Um, so, you know, similar to the full inclusion model and this idea of coming in and out, um, you know, a difference between that and an inside basis model m might only be the difference between tax affecting 100% of the deferreds inside the entity versus looking just at those deferreds that you can trace and say will reverse um, as compared to the outside basis model, which you could end up potentially booking nothing depending on what that outside basis looks like. So I'll ask the obvious question. You uh, talk about two different choices. So is that a policy choice, an election that's got to be made? Yeah, it is something that you need to be consistently applying. So, you know, as you think about what you have going on, and um, you mentioned earlier the planning that's happening. So as things have evolved and changed, you may well have had subpart F in the past. So you do need to be thinking about what, what policy you've elected. And just to sum up the conversation that we've had here, because we've covered a lot of ground, and it is a very complicated issue, but I think as we... Uh, talk to our clients, and, and oftentimes what I'm concerned about, and the reason why I think we added it to the agenda, was you you have people that work within an organization that handle the planning side of the of the house, and you've got people those oftentimes are not the same people that are in the financial reporting side, mm -hmm. and there are some important decisions to to make here that have significant accounting implications, and you'd like to be able to make those decisions with full knowledge and up front right. versus on the back end. So it's really the key point being, you know, to get uh, to, to try to stay in front of this and um, understand that it's going on and recognize that there are issues there. But I want to move right to our next topic, and it's somewhat similar to the conversation we just had because that one in, with, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about 163J, evaluation allowance assessments, but it's similar in the sense that the actual technical issue we're going to discuss is no different, really, pre- or post-tax reform. It would have theoretically existed before, um, or did exist before. But the fact that the tax law has broadened the definition of 163J, more people are getting caught in that particular provision. So now we have more people that are dealing with this issue. And this, uh, th so there's this question or trap that's kind of emerged that we see people falling into. And I wanted to spend some time talking about it, even though a topic of valuation allowances in 163J. I mean, when, anytime you talk about valuation allowance, it's kind of a sleepy topic. You know, people want a webcast, <laughs> they hear it, they want to fall asleep. Uh, and, and on top of that, when you talk about 163J and VA, if you've listened to any podcast, or webcast, or read any article related to the TCGA and financial reporting, this is probably covered. So you get people saying, well, I got this. You know, I can tune out now for the next couple of minutes until they get on to the next topic. But there is a there is a trap that we see people falling into. What scares me about it is people that are really uh, know the area well are falling into it. So I, I do want to spend a little bit of time and make sure people are aware that uh, of what we're trying to get across. But in order to do that, Cassie, I think we probably need to set up at least a few things as we get into what this issue specifically is. Yeah, so a couple things just to level set. I think the first is... What you're talking about with more companies potentially being exposed to this is that what we expect to see because the interest limitation post-tax reform applies not just to related party interest but also to third party interest is that a lot more companies will start to have this carry forward on their books potentially and also that it will grow because the 30% uh, limitation um, on adjusted taxable income that is incorporated into the 163J um, standard or law 
is based off of EBITDA right now, Today. but yep. in 2021, it'll switch to EBIT, which is just going to kind of make things get bigger. Mm -hmm. So a couple other things to just level set. This is an indefinite live carry forward, so it doesn't expire, which is good news generally for companies. <laughs> but um, because it is indefinite live, just a reminder to everybody that when you're thinking about reversing deferred tax liabilities that may provide a source of realization, that those indefinite lived DTLs, or that are related to indefinite lived um, assets, the, D the naked credits, as many people call right. them, can be a source for indefinite lived carry forwards. And so don't forget about them. That's really important because I know a lot of people kind of mentally block themselves off from like, don't use those, you right. know? Yeah. <laughs> well, now you can, not just for these, but for the new NOLs as well. Mm -hmm. So I think the best way to demonstrate this, because you're right that people who have a lot of experience in this area are kind of um, can, can get tripped up here mm -hmm. is is to go through an example. Okay. And so our next slide has two different examples on it and they are super simple intentionally so that we can get the point across. Um, the first example that we'll start with here is a pretty common fact pattern where a company may have been generating losses in the past, um, pre-tax losses we're talking about here. And so in this example, we said, okay, they have a $300 pre-tax loss each year in the past. That's expected to continue, except that $1,000 of that in, uh, is interest expense. And so you can see that's really what's driving them into a pre-tax loss position. And so because we're talking about interest expense, the 163J limitation comes into, into play here. So if the company in this fact pattern has deductible temporary differences for their 163J carry forward of $500, and we're doing deductible and taxable temporary differences instead of DTAs and DTLs just to not tax affect anything, just make the make number super simple. <laughs> All about simplicity. Um, so here, there's... A, a deductible difference of 500 for the 163J carry forward, but there's a taxable temporary difference that in this case we said, let's just do an intangible with book basis and no tax basis. You don't have to worry about are we in the EBITDA or EBIT period, it's irrelevant. Um, here they have a taxable temporary difference of $2,000. So when you work through that reversing taxable temporary difference and you think about the 30% limitation that we talked about in 163J, you would say, okay, $2,000 times 30% equals $600 of realization to help to, to go against my $500 of 163J carry forward. So mm -hmm. if those were the only two temporary differences that I had, then I would say, okay, I don't need a valuation allowance on that um, 163J carry forward. Right. And that's where you would stop. You don't look ahead and say, but I know that I'm going to always have a limitation here because I'm not getting rid of any of my debt and nothing, I don't expect anything to change. You don't think forward through that, you deal with the facts that you have right now. Mm -hmm. So that's one example. Moving to example number two, the only thing that has changed in example two here is that that taxable temporary difference is a little smaller. So you can see it's only $1,500 instead of 2000 So if you go through the same mechanics and you apply the 30% limitation, you end up with $450 to realize that $500 carry forward. So you say, okay, uh, I, I've got 50 bucks that I, I can't realize, mm -hmm. now what do I do? Well, you go to the standard, which says I've got four sources of taxable income that I'm required to think about. I have to think about all four. But in this case, because I've already talked about my reversing temporary differences, 
Mm -hmm. um, carry back does not apply to 163J under the law. It just doesn't, so you can skip that. And then tax planning strategies is the other potential source of taxable income. And But by definition, tax planning strategies don't apply here because they are something that you would do to keep an attribute from expiring. Mm. Well, our 163J carry forward doesn't expire, and so the tax planning strategy is not an option. So then you're left with the fourth one, which is forecasts of future taxable income. So in this particular fact pattern, if you think about the way that the numbers would work out here, after the limitation is applied each year, the company would have taxable income. So they're now in a position where they can actually forecast future taxable income. Mm -hmm. um, but if you are using a forecast of future taxable income, inherent is, in that is new originating temporary differences. Right. And that would include the fact that the, like, the following year's interest expense would get limited first and kind of inhibit you from using the carry forward. So the forecast of future taxable income is not going to give you any incremental benefit over the $450 that you got from that reversing taxable temporary difference. So at that point, you're done. You've looked at all four or what are the two that were available. And you say, okay, I need a $50 valuation allowance. Mm -hmm. And so that's how companies should be thinking about applying the sources of taxable income to 163J. I guess the two things I would caution, again, because don't want to, uh, this is super simple, so don't want right. to yeah. make it too simple. It doesn't happen like this in is, real life. Um, yeah. <laughs> one is, you know, we didn't need to do any scheduling here. Mm -hmm. We've only got, we've got one deductible temporary difference and we've got one taxable one. So it's, it's pretty easy. But scheduling is probably going to be a lot more likely going forward. Um, so companies have to kind of keep that in mind. And then the second thing is, when we're talking about that incremental benefit, when I was talking about that $50, you're talking about incremental benefit for all of your deferred tax assets. And so if you were in a situation, say here you had an example too, you had also NOLs, maybe old NOLs that expired. And that future forecast of taxable income would help you realize all of those NOLs potentially um, but it doesn't help you with your 163J carry forward. Well, you can't ignore it right. it's because yeah. it's giving you incremental benefit for the totality of your deferreds. And so you have to kind of think about that. So there could be instances where going to that second source of um, future taxable income would help you kind of overall, but may end up saying, okay, well, I need actually a full VA on my 163J carry forward. I just don't need a VA on anything else. Mm -hmm. So it's important to just kind of keep that, that portion in mind. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, the, the way I kind of look at it and kind of evaluating when we see people fall into the trap that we've been talking about, uh, there seems to be one of two things, sometimes both elements involved. And one is you've got this viewpoint, if you're looking at 163J, you expect to be subject to the limitation going forward, and you're evaluating the, the realizability of the, the disallowed interest, you look at it and say, well, I'm going to be subject to this limitation, I'm not going to get a benefit for any of this. So right. it seems odd to benefit some portion of it. And so there's this viewpoint of I should not benefit any of those non-deductible, you know, 163J disallowed expense deductions. But, and then on the other hand, I think it is, we've, we've definitely driven home the fact you need to schedule. We've mm -hmm. talked about that on our webcasts and articles and things like that. So people know that. But what seems to be happening is this desire to want to pull both the first source right. being the reversal of the temporary differences, 
with the future taxable income into the same scheduling exercise. Yep. And that this reluctance to not want to stop once you, as you described in example one, where it would say, or even example two, where you have some portion of that DTA that's covered by a DTL, you know, you're supposed to stop there. So right. some people, are, there's reluctance to do that. So. That's right. Yeah. I think it's, it's definitely safer to think of them separately. They're listed separately in the standard for a reason. So right. keep them separate. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you.